This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Sharp Cereals, Twinkles, Cocoa Bears, Brand 16, and Red Raspberry Zingers. They're the best tasting cereals in America, and they're good for you. Smart cereals. Nope, nothing wrong here. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And before we move into December for all the Christmas horror that we'll be getting to, this week is a Stephen King slash murderous dog slash woman in trouble woman in trouble <laughs> week <laughs> with 1983's Cujo and 2017's Gerald's Game. Getting right into our first movie, Cujo, from 1983, our classic film. Directed by Louis Teague, written by Don Carlos Dunaway and Barbara Turner, based on the novel by Stephen King. Starring Dee Wallace, Daniel Hugh Kelly, and Danny Pintaro. Uh, and the director of photography is Jan DeBont. This is the guy that directed Speed and Speed 2 Cruise Control and Twister and, on this show, The Haunting. Yeah, you know, that gem, the haunting. What is Cujo about, Kelsey? A woman and her son get caught in their car with a rabid dog on the outside of the car, not letting them get out. The movie is available to rent for $4 and buy for $13 on most services. Should people watch Cujo, Kelsey? Yes. Yeah. I think you should watch it at least once. Sure. I think this is one of those movies that's like, you gotta see Cujo, right? But I don't know that I would say, like, oh my god, it's an incredible, like, Stephen King adaptation or well, anything. Well, I think it's very good, actually. And I think that for a movie that mostly takes place in one location... Yes. ...with one antagonist, I think it works. Yes. That said, they don't get to that location for Quite some time. True. It's a while before they get to the meat of the movie. But uh, you got to sit through all that to get to the good stuff, I guess you could say. Plus, if you really want to feel bad for a dog, (laughs) you should watch it because you will definitely... It's all poor puppy. The whole time. Because it's not his fault. He didn't want to do that. No. Poor puppy. Mm -hmm. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about... 1983's Cujo. Cujo? From the novel by Stephen King, creator of Carrie and The Shining, comes a chilling new tale. Cujo? Now, there's a new name for terror. Cujo, directed by Louis Teague, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you, check newspaper for listing. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Cujo begin? With a really cute St. Bernard. 
yeah. chasing after a rabbit. And he chases it to its hole where it gets its head inside and there are bats in there. And he disturbs the bats and one of them bites his snout and gives him rabies. Yeah, poor, poor puppy. That's the beginning of the end for this thing. Yes. Then we are introduced to the family and the little boy has this major fear of the dark. He believes there is a monster under his bed and it feels very real when he has to turn off the light and run to his bed. Yeah, it's. A, I gotta say the filming was a little whimsical, but yes, it does like capture that feeling when you're a kid. Yes, trying to get to the bed without anything getting to you yep. right when you turn off the lights. Yep. I know that feeling. And the wife, Dee Wallace, the mother, she is having an affair with the local handyman. Yeah, so this is... Steve Kemp, played by Christopher Stone, who was actually married to Dee Wallace at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, they were in The Howling together, where we saw them on this show. Mm. And they were married until the day he died in 1995. Mm. We've also seen Dee Wallace on this show. A couple times. Red Red Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. But what you all know her from is E.T., of course. Of course. Of course. It's very real, because she, like, goes to him to tell him that it's over. Mm-hmm. I think up to that point, the only scene we saw him in was he showed up, gave a gift to their kid, and then played tennis with her husband. And then she was at his house at one point. Oh, yeah, okay. Yes, showing us that they were having an affair, which they made very obvious when he came by the house. Like, she was very uncomfortable and didn't want to talk to him. Uh-huh. And... When she will go and tell him that she wants to end things, unfortunately for her, her husband will see the drama of it play out. Yeah, he can't catch them in the act, but he sees Steve chase her to her car. And when he turns back around and comes back, they're gone. So what was that all about? He has his suspicions. Later on, he's going to show up when she's home alone. I don't get this, though. She said that her kid was asleep upstairs. Where's Tadpole? He's upstairs, sleeping. But he was at summer camp. How's my boy, huh? You having a good time at summer camp? That was weird. But really what's happening is Vic, the husband, got off work early, in quotes, picked his son up from the summer daycare and brought him home To walk in on, she's smashed something, and the two of them are there, and there's a lot of tension in the air. Mm -hmm. And then she tells Steve to leave, and then he does, and Vic asks her. Yes or no? And she says yes. Yes. It's devastating. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And there is a subplot... That the husband is, like, going to lose this big thing, this big job at work. This account, this ad account for cereal. Mm-hmm. And in the novel, that is going to be why he never comes back and why both, I think, both the wife and son die. The son dies, the wife survives, and he saves the account. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a pretty devastating ending. <laughs> it is the ending that... Stephen King said, okay, so this book is the is one of the ones that he wrote when he was in the depths of his alcoholism. And I think he was doing a lot of coke back then, too. He says he doesn't remember writing it. 
it's one of those. He wishes he could remember because he actually kind of likes some of the stuff he put down, but he doesn't. And he says if he could go back and change one thing, it would be he wouldn't kill the kid. He thinks that's the the worst part of the book is that he, he decided to kill the kid. Interesting. He dies of dehydration. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But the whole reason that they are tied to the family that has Cujo is because Cujo is owned by the local repairman for cars, car repairman. There's also a whole subplot going on with him and his family, but in the movie they don't really go into it very much. But all you really need to know is the wife and son are going to be gone, and in the book it's explained because the guy is abusive and she needs to get away. But in this one they just leave, and the so the husband is all alone, so they don't know that the dog has gone rabid and then kills the husband. Yes, and his friend, who he was going to go on his own little booze trip with. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're the first ones that Cujo kills. It's first the neighbor friend. And then when the mechanic goes to check on him to say, hey, ready to go, he finds him dead. And then Cujo finds him <laughs> and kills him. Yes. And Cujo goes back home. So the weird thing is the husband drives this fancy sports car. He's an ad guy, right? He has a certain image to maintain. And he probably also has a lot of money from that. But... Dee Wallace is still driving this beat-up old Pinto. She is this sort of put-upon, stay-at-home mom who has no passion in her life, and that's why she went to Steve, right? Mm-hmm. When the Pinto starts giving her problems, he, Vic, takes a look at it and is like, oh, well, they got to fix this part. I can't do it on my own. Like you say, got to take it to the repairman. And then she says, no, I'll do it. Because he's like, oh, I can't do it today. I, I'll have to do it on Saturday. And she's like, don't worry about it. I'll do it. I'll try and run it up Saturday if I can get the time. It's okay. I'll take care of it. And then later on, it still hasn't gone to the mechanic. And he's about to leave for his trip to save this account. He says, I forgot to take it to the mechanic. And then she says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I forgot to take the pinot in the canvas. I'll take care of it. So, like, if those things didn't happen, like, okay, so the state of the marriage and his work leads to the husband, Vic, not being too concerned about fixing this car. He is concerned, but not, like, overtly concerned. He has other things on his mind. When he leaves, she's like, you just need to know that I'm so sorry and that I love you so much and all of that. And she's like, I can't make it so it didn't happen. And then he tells her, I can't make it so it didn't happen either. Just heartbreaking, right? Mm-hmm. Their detachment and D. Wallace's general malaise lead to her saying, fuck it, I'll take care of it. Sure enough, he does forget. She's like, fuck it, I'll take care of it. And then she takes it in. So this whole entire movie would not have happened if it wasn't for their relationship troubles. I'm not putting this all on D. Wallace. Like, if you hadn't had that affair, you never <laughs> would have been attacked by a rabid dog. No, that's <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> But they have a relationship issue, and there was one long before we come into it. Mm-hmm. And if that hadn't happened, none of the movie would have happened. You can also probably say the same thing about the wife of the mechanic winning the lottery. Those two things happening because the relationship is really shit, mm-hmm. right? Like, bad relationships are what leads to the events of this movie. Mm-hmm. True. So she does. She takes it in. So she goes to get out of the car. 
and notices that there's nobody around. And her son is demanding that she get she lets him out of the car. And she's just like, God, you're so impatient. But it requires her to get into the car to undo the seatbelt because the seatbelt's also a little bit broken. But it's a good thing this happens because that's when Cujo attacks and she's already inside the car. So she's able to close the door. This is some really good camera work, I got to say. We we see her. So her like ass is hanging out the open driver's side door as she's leaning in to try to help with the seatbelt. And the camera kind of creeps up on her from behind implying that the camera is the dog. And as it gets closer and closer and closer, it goes into the car, right? It cuts into the car. And we see the struggle. And then on the passenger side, in the background of the shot, Cujo pops up. (laughs) And it's a fantastic use of a jump scare. And not a shitty jump scare, but the jump scare that sort of jump starts the primary events of the film, right? Like, Mm -hmm. this is when everything goes to shit is at this moment right here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she's forced to hide in her car with her son. Her son's name, by the way, Tad. (sighs) Sorry for all the Tads out there. Tad Gage. Yeah. (laughs) What are these names? I don't know. I feel like I like the name Gage. (laughs) It's not happening. But so, and she's trying to, calm this already terrified child who, like, we all know has these terror issues. Uh Uh-huh. He's scared of the monsters in his house. Mm -hmm. That's why there's this concept of the monster words, which are the special words that the dad normally says to put the kid at ease and keep the monsters away. And he wrote all the words down so the mom could use them. And the little kid carries these monster words around with him. Mm -hmm. That's the type of child that we're dealing with here. Yes. So... That's why he is very hard to console. He's very, he reminded me a lot of the kid from the Babadook. Yes. Not as obnoxious. Because he only gets that way when they're going to be murdered by a rabid dog. But, yes. (laughs) I also enjoyed when she goes to turn the key for the car, she says, come on, baby, one more time. Yeah, that was cute. But the point is, not only are they stuck in their car, but the car won't start. Yes. And so she's stuck in there for a long time. It's very, very sad because the dog is really sick and the kid says, I wish he would die. Yeah. But as she's looking out the window, she sees an opportunity because she sees a bat. And I thought that was funny because a bat is what started all this. Interesting. Yes. Never thought about that. That never occurred to me. (laughs) Homonyms. (laughs) There's also an interesting uh, line here uh, where the kid is like, will you try the the key again? And she's just like, well, I'm worried I'll kill the battery. And he's like, does it matter? Right, yeah. And he's right. The kid's right. Yes. Because if you're worried about preserving the battery, because you might need it to start the car, but you're not willing to try to start the car to see if the battery's working because it might drain the battery, what the fuck is the point? You might as well try. (laughs) Yes. There are a couple of moments. I mean, basically, the whole rest of the movie is going to be Vic worried about his family because when he calls home, he can't get a hold of them. There's a subplot of Steve shows up at the house and tears everything up. So when Vic gets home, he sees that the whole place is demolished and his kids are missing. And then there's the cops and the cops find Steve. They believe him when he says, yeah, I fucked with the house, but I didn't touch the the wife or kid. 
And one of the cops, one of the sheriffs or the sheriff goes to the mechanics to see if he saw her because the husband says she was supposed to go to the mechanic. And that's how he's going to get there. But he, the husband's going to be trying to rush to get home and find them. And then that's this whole subplot that's going on. But the rest of the movie is just they're stuck in the car and they can't get out because the dog's out there and things get worse and worse. They dehydrate. Well, at one point, the phone rings. The phone rings! Which inspires her to get out of the car. Uh She will hit Cujo, but it will not be enough. And he will bite her. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he'll bite her in the leg. In the book, I think she gets bitten in the stomach as well. Yeah, so there are just a bunch of moments punctuating this, right? When she gets out of the car there, she's wearing high heels. Take the fucking shoes off, lady. What the hell are you thinking? There's also a really strong indication that the husband has a psychic connection because at some point he, like, realizes where they are or something. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're just thinking that way because it's a Stephen King movie. But maybe. I, I mean, it could just be his own realization. Well, the kid ends up having a seizure. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's not good. He does that, I think, twice. He gets very, very close to dying in this movie. There's another moment where they fall asleep because they're in there for like two and a half days or something like that. She wakes up and turns to look out the window and the dog is just fucking staring at her. (laughs) Great moment. Loved that. Yes. In general, I like that that all these moments require Dee Wallace to take action and ultimately at the climax requires her to take action to protect herself and her son. And that's kind of the similar sort of thing with Gerald's game, where it's about, like, it's about a woman who needs to take action to save herself. And it's about her building up the courage to do so, and not just running scared from something and hoping to survive. You know, it's, I'm going to do something. Yeah. And that they didn't have, like, the husband come in at the last minute to fucking save her or anything, you know? Mm-hmm. After the cop gets killed by Cujo, that's how she gets the gun. Yes. And she's inspired to go and back into the house again because she thinks her son is dead. Yeah, and he's trapped in the back of the Pinto, and so she uses the gun to smash open the window to get him. And then, yeah, and she breaks the glass. But like Chris said in the movie, it was like, why would you do it right over your son's right. head? There's already a passenger window that's spiderwebbed. Break that one. Mm-hmm. If he's in the hatchback... And you're going to break the window that's at an angle over the top of him. I mean, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. There's another cool shot at some point in here where the camera's inside. So there's an early shot where the camera's outside the car and circles around the car to show you everything. It's like desolation. It's a shitty farmhouse. And then there's a shot inside the car where the camera's basically put on a pole and it is looking at the kid and then it rotates around to look at her and she gives a line as it passes by and then it goes by the kid's face and then it starts going faster and faster and faster as they're getting more and more freaked out. Yeah. And like they're going to hallucinate or something. Their minds are going from the dehydration and all that shit and the yeah. stress. Eventually, and it just spins and spins and spins. Dee Wallace will finally lose her shit and yell at her kid. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which I totally understand. So at one point she gets out and manages to get to the bat and Cujo comes out from underneath the front porch and comes charging at her, and she's like, fuck you, dog, and 
swings the bat at him and starts beating him with the bat as best she can, fending him off. There's great moments where, like, the dog is the camera, you know, and she's swinging at the camera a la The Shining, (laughs) another Stephen King movie. And then the bat actually breaks on Cujo, and he is not stopping. So one of the things that rabies does to a dog's brain is it takes away their ability to feel fear. Uh, So Cujo at this moment does not know what it means to be afraid of something. Uh, And that coupled with the unchecked aggression is a dangerous combination for both of them. The bat breaks, she tries to get away and falls down, and he charges at her, and she takes the splintered handle of this bat, and he gets impaled on it. And then she has to, like, flop him off of her. And then, yeah, she grabs her kid and runs inside. Really dramatic moment, she brushes everything off the table and then lays him down and gives him CPR and is crying until finally he sort of coughs awake, like, you know, as in every one of those scenes... Uh, Also, just as the husband is arriving, because he's talking to Jerry Harden, Deep Throat, the detective assigned to the missing purpose case, Deep Throat from (laughs) X-Files. And he asks him, what do we find out about the mechanic? Did he see her or not? And he's like, oh, well, the sheriff's not back yet. What do you mean the sheriff's not back yet? I'm sure he's following up on a lead or something. And he's like, well, (laughs) shit, I got to get out there. (laughs) And he drives out there and they're coming out of the house. She's holding her living son. Oh, Cujo comes back in, crashes through the window, and she shoots him with the gun that she has. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that Cujo would get back up at this point. And (laughs) if he did, wouldn't go to attack him. But they need that last scare. They do need that last scare. As she's coming out of the house, that's when Vic shows up, sees them. Runs to embrace them. Terrible still frame. Still shot. Freeze frame. Before they can embrace. Credits. Credits roll over them not embracing. It's yeah. so bad. What were they thinking with that still frame? I, yeah, it's it's a pretty bad still frame. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's just the credits are on screen. It is like, not what? the still frame ending from the Langoliers. Let's put it that way. There is no falling action in this movie. That's one of those things. You only get the relief of him seeing them alive. That's the only relief that you get. So there's that. Like I say, I really like that she kills Cujo. I don't like that Cujo dies, but I especially don't like that he got the rabies in the first place and probably would have had to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, they have to. So, like, I'm fine with once he's at that point and he becomes murderous, you got to kill the dog, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that she did it and did it twice. Because <laughs> it's a movie about, like, sort of, she starts the movie completely deflated, demoralized, probably depressed. She does not feel good about who she is, what she's doing, her relationship. She doesn't even care that much about her son. (laughs) Like, it's a bad place for her. And the movie asks of her to take action, to take care of what's important to her. I like that. I do not want to suggest that Oh, you just need to take charge and you can get out of a depression that way because that's not the case. But I like that she is able to. Of course, we don't know what happens after this, but, you know, you like to think that they get back together. (laughs) (laughs) That they stay together, I guess. I also just want to say two little things that pretty much everyone's heard of. Actually, three little things of how they got the dogs to do this. There were several dogs 
including one that wasn't even a St. Bernard. I think it was like a Great Dane or something like that. And they put like a costume on it. So it could just look really big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them was like a robotic sort of marionette thing. Mm-hmm. And one of them was even a stuntman or one of the effects people in a costume. Oh, I never noticed. Yeah. They do a really, really good job of making this dog look good. The yes. consistency between shots, not so great. Because the what's all over the dog's fur is different in Uh-oh. every single scene. That's true. I just assume that he's running around doing shit. Sure, yeah, you can just assume that. But anyway, how they do that is it's caro syrup and red food coloring, of course. Right? Like, that's used all over the place. They mention it in Scream. <laughs> Corn syrup, right? Mm-hmm. That's for the blood. It's a combination of like egg whites and sugar or something like that to make the frothing, like the foaming mouth. And that was one of the things. If you feel bad about the dogs, apparently they couldn't stop them in between scenes from like licking their faces and getting it all off. They had to reapply it every single scene. <laughs> so those dogs were doing good. They were very happy. So happy that they had to secure their tails down because they would <laughs> wag too much. So they had to like tie them to their tails. There are a few scenes where you can still see the dog wagging its tail despite this. And how they got the dogs to attack the car was they put stunt people inside with the camera, and the dog's favorite toys. <laughs> so they're not mad. They're just scratching. I want my toy. I want my toy. Oh, Yeah. He's so cute. It's very, very cute. But one of the people who was doing that got hurt, apparently. <sighs> they had to get stitches. So instead of getting the toy, it got her face. Oh, my God. And so she got cut on her nose. Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. So just some fun facts about how they did that with the dog. Those are the sorts of things that everyone talks about when they talk about Cujo. So I'm sure most of you guys already know that stuff. So, I mean, that's basically all there is to it. There's not a lot going on in Cujo beside, like, the subtext, which we sort of already discussed. And the first time you watch it, everything is, uh, the dog is scary and the jump scares work and everything. The second time you watch it, which for, this was my second time watching it, you know, it's not nearly as thrilling because you know exactly what's going to happen yeah so i but i definitely highly recommend seeing it at least once it is fun and it can be scary yeah it's tense it's a hell of a time for this lady and her kid kid by the way who i would say does a very good job pretty good yeah like acting Mm -hmm. like he looks terrified convincingly yes when he's having his seizure or when he when he's having like an asthma attack or whatever those moments are i think he does really really good you know, I want my daddy. I thought he did a very, very good job of that. Little kid acting very well. So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 86? 62. Oh, geez. Cujo is artless work. Oh. Punctuated with moments of high canine gore and one wild D. Wallace performance. Oh. I don't know. I kind of don't agree with any of that. Yeah. I don't think there's a whole hell of a lot of gore in this movie. No. There is some. There's gore. Not a lot. Not a lot. It's more terror. Yeah. I also don't think it's artless. Like I said, there's some cool moments that we get. Like there's that, you know, the spinning camera or something. This is Jan DeBont sort of like showing off and he'll eventually get director's duties, right? Mm-hmm. It's not revolutionary in any way, but it's still. Thrilling. Yeah. Fuck that. 62 seems underrated. Very. It's a 57 Metacritic. What would you give it, though? 
I'm going to give it a 79. I don't think I can give it a 79, but I think it is firmly in the 70s. You know, I'll give it a 74. Okay. Not quite a 75, but it's better than a 70. You I think know what it's I mean? very good for what it is. Yeah. When you hear the plot, you wouldn't think it would be that thrilling, and it is. So. Yeah. And that's kind of why we kind of hemmed and hawed over whether or not you should watch it is because, yeah, you should watch it once. Mm-hmm. Second time, you know, it's it's hard to get sort of excited about the movie again, I feel. Like, yes. it suffers from that. But yes. that first time is very good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think 70s is a good one for this. And that is Cujo. I mean, there's not a lot to talk about because not a lot happens. Mm-hmm. Speaking of a movie about a woman stuck in one place where not a lot actually happens... Our modern film, 2017's Gerald's Game, mm-hmm. directed by Mike Flanagan. He is back. We've had him on the show a couple times. One of his weaker. You think? Weaker We'll ones. talk about it. With screenplay by Mike Flanagan and Jeff Howard, based, of course, on Stephen King's novel from 1992. Starring Carla Gugino, Bruce Greenwood, and Chiara Aurelia. Of course, the Flanagan regulars are here. Uh, we're missing Annabeth Gish and Robert Longstreet, though. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, there's, what, like four or so different regulars? And there's not a lot of people in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say Gerald's Game is about? A woman gets locked up on accident. I mean, not on accident when it happens, but she was not meant to be stuck there. And accidentally, her husband dies before he can undo her shackles. What you're told this movie is going to be about is her daring escape. And while that is part of the film, most of this movie is just a drama about a woman dealing with her issues. Yes. This movie is going to lean really, really heavily into, like, abuse and repressed memories and things like that. So keep an eye out there. If that's not what you're into, totally get it. And if you need to step out and end the episode here, totally fine. We'll see you next week. But that is basically what the entire movie is about. It is available on Netflix and only on Netflix. Should people watch Gerald's Game? As long as you are not looking for a horror movie. There are scary moments and scary elements, but... The majority of this is about a woman dealing with abuse and learning to cope. Yes. In Cujo, all the action takes place with a murderous, rabid dog outside that is the reason everything's happening and is a constant threat. In this movie, the reason everything is happening isn't the horror bit. It's, it is because of a relationship problem. Right. It, it's the challenge that she has. You know what I mean? Like, nobody has her cuffed up because they're going to do something to her. There are two real threats to her in this entire movie. And one of them might not even be real for most of the movie. And the other one is just kind of a looming threat, but doesn't actually do much. So you got to understand that this is going to be a woman handcuffed to a bed. She starts hallucinating and being her own therapist. Uh, And then eventually she'll have to try to actually get herself out. 
So if that sounds intriguing, that's why you watch this movie, because it is very intriguing, but it is not too horror-filled. No. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2017's Gerald's Game. This is going to be good for us, Jess. Really good. That's a marriage, isn't it? Working on the difficult things. For better or worse. Let's go in. Get comfy. Bet you think your husband will be back any minute. Try to go for help. There's no one for miles. Gerald? I'm sorry, baby. You don't get to know my name. I don't like this. I'm serious. Stop. I don't like that. Stop it! Play. Is this really what it takes these days? I don't know. We were so wrong. We were happy once. Where are we? Gerald? What? What's happening? Gerald! screaming for neighbors that are half a mile away if they're even here yet. How long do you think someone lives without water? That will not work. You can pull to your wrists break. You're not getting out of those cuffs. Not real. Not real. You all right, you all right, Mel? Everything you need to survive from the beginning. If you don't wake up, you're going to die. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Gerald's game begin? They're getting ready to go on a weekend or, I don't know, some sort of trip. A getaway. A getaway. You get this aerial camera shot of their bedroom. Yes. And you can tell that's supposed to be a sexy getaway. She's bought a new nightgown. Like a negligee sort of thing. Yes, and he is bringing handcuffs. Yeah, and you can also tell something a little bit about their personalities, or at the very least, how they feel about this trip. Because she just sort of lays it out, so it's obviously an important part of the trip. And then she bundles it up and just tosses it in her bag. Meanwhile, he carefully folds everything. She tells us something about his personality. Maybe he's a little bit controlling. And then very neatly lays like the handcuffs on top. Like he almost like he's OCD or something about it. Mm. I didn't notice that she just bundled hers up. Yeah. You know, she folds it in a way that's it's not folded. It's just kind of loosely bundled. Mm. So they're driving in and they come across a dog that's eating a roadkill. In the middle of the road. Yeah. And she immediately wants to show it kindness and give it food, and he's very frustrated with it and honks at it. And so, yeah, so you're just supposed to understand that it's a very stereotypical male, aggressive woman uh-huh. caring and nurturing. Right. And he has to tell her, we're not going back and picking it up. Right. You know, and they, they chuckle a little. She's like, I know. And he laughs. And- oh, shit. Starving. Should do something about those strays. You know what? I, I I think he had a caller. He might belong to someone. Well, he won't for long. If he keeps going for roadkill, he's going to be roadkill himself. 
We're not going back for him. No. We're not. I know. <laughs> yeah, so when they get there, he goes to take a work phone call, which, you know, tells us a little bit more about their relationship, and she cuts out some steak to give to the dog, and... Um, it's hard for me to believe that this woman who is married to this man who has all this money doesn't know what the Kobe beef is. Doesn't yeah. know what Kobe <laughs> beef is. Doesn't understand like how much he spent on it. Yeah, it's a little. It's just to prove a point later. Yeah, it's also a lot of meat. Then in that case, we saw he had a couple different you know full steaks of meat, and she sliced one of them into multiple pieces. Like how much Kobe beef were they planning on having? <laughs> It was a special weekend, uh -huh. although he didn't really seem like food was on the menu for him, right? so I don't know why he'd be upset about it. Well, you gotta eat sometime. I guess. <laughs> Wait, can I just stop, because we're kind of smoothing over the fact that this is Carla Gugino, who I had the biggest crush on her when I was a kid. Really? From what? Son-in-law, of all things. I fucking loved that movie. I loved Polly Shore, you know, just like... Weird movies, too. Like, you know, yes, Encino Man was out, but, like, Son-in-Law and Jury Duty. I've never seen Partially Jury Duty, in the Army Now. But I've never seen In the Army Now, but I did like Son-in-Law. I really loved Son-in-Law. It's not a great movie, but I loved it. And Carla Gugino was, like, I had the biggest crush on her <laughs> when I was a kid. But then I wouldn't recognize her again in anything, even though I had seen her in things, until probably Sin City. <laughs> Where she ended up being topless. And a lesbian. Yeah. But she was in uh, Spy Kids. Yep. Mm -hmm. I don't know why in my mind I had Melanie Griffith as the mom in Spy Kids. No. Because she's married to Antonio Banderas. Are they still married? I don't know. I have no idea. But it's, it was Carla Gugino. But love her. Absolutely love her. And she's become, like I said earlier, sort of Flanagan regular. Yes. But so she goes to feed that the dog. Uh, as she's doing that, after he gets off the call, he goes to take Viagra. And I guess it's implied that she doesn't do it for him anymore. I don't think that that's the case. But, well, from her perspective. But I was like, doesn't that just naturally happen to men? Yeah, that's, it's not a, it's more of a physiological and, and, uh, Psychological. Psychological, like, combination thing happening. It's not because you're not attracted to your wife or anything like that, right? Like, it's just, it's a thing. You know, people make the joke, it happens to everyone. It doesn't happen to everyone, but it's perfectly normal when it does. Like, it's <laughs> not, it it doesn't necessarily mean anything directly about the person that they're with. Could be a lot of other shit going on in that person's life. There could be something physiological happening preventing it like maybe they have blood pressure problems or whatever you know like that's what viagra was is it was originally i think i want to say it was originally a medication attempt to medicate against blood pressure problems and then they found out that all their trial subjects ended up getting boners and they're like oh it's a boner pill <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, so this whole like feeding of the dog thing is going to become a problem because this dog is just going to become, it just likes to eat people now, I guess. Well, it's starving. I guess, uh, even though and she just gave it a ton of meat. meat. Yeah, I don't believe that this dog would be so quick to, you know, but. Cats do, but not dogs. But, you know, who knows how starving this dog was? I guess, but dogs certainly don't go after living humans yeah. unless they are rabid. Like, it just doesn't. 
I don't know. But they're going to leave the door open, which is so fucking stupid. I'm just like, seriously? Because his goal is to go and have sex with his wife. Uh-huh. And you're just going to leave the front door open? <laughs> they're in the middle of nowhere. I don't know that I believe that she would be okay with the door being open. Yeah, but she is opening herself up to being led by her husband and being like, okay, this is a thing we're doing. He's taking the lead on this and it's going to be uncomfortable and I just need to, you know, sort of like allow it to happen and maybe that'll be hot. Maybe the idea that somebody could walk in on us at any time is hot, but also I can be confident in the fact that it's probably not likely we're in the middle of fucking nowhere. We know who our neighbors are and we know they're not home right now. So like... What's the worst that could happen? I suppose. We're going to find out what the worst is that can happen. They also mention that she thought she saw a collar on the dog. Mm. But I don't know. Do we ever see? I don't think we ever see what that's about. Like, so who did that dog belong to? Is this a connection to another Stephen King story? It very well could be because they do that shit. There are several connections to other both King and Flanagan stories in this movie. Mm hmm. For instance, the bed they go to, the headboard, part of the headboard, because I was looking at this, I'm like, no, it's not. And so I compared pictures and everything, and the center part of the headboard, the rest of the headboard is sort of built around it, is the same as the bottom of the frame of the mirror in Oculus, which is a Flanagan movie. Okay. Okay. One of the early Flanagan movies that we saw and- Loved. Really liked. Is it? It is. Okay. Yeah, it's not literally the same thing, but it's the same design. I'm fine with that. And then there's more built around it to make it, like, obviously headboard-sized, you mm-hmm. know? So it's just the center portion. But yeah, that was the, one of the first movies that we saw of Flanagan's, and we really, really liked it. We became big fans even the, before we knew who he was. And we ended up seeing Hush, which we enjoyed, and Ouija Origin of Evil, which we actually enjoyed. But we aren't blind fans. I just want to point out I was looking at his... IMDb list of credits and you know he did Before I Wake which is one that we watched we did on the not show. like that we thought it was okay we gave it a 59 and a 60 ah. so I mean obviously it wasn't incompetent like he is a competent director mm-hmm. but it didn't blow our skirts up either mm-hmm. it's not like just because it was Flanagan oh my god we're gonna gush over it he just happens to do a lot of things that we in isolation really enjoy mm-hmm Yeah, and I think he's extremely talented. Uh, That doesn't always mean that what he presents to you is good. Like, The Haunting of Bly Manor is very good. The acting is incredible. The camera work is delightful. It's very, very good. It's not scary. It's not scary, and it's not that interesting of a story. (laughs) Right. But it's really good. It's really well done. That's the one on The Innocence, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a bummer, because we really liked The Innocence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it was... A great show, but yeah, not his. It was very dramatic, I would say, and had a great drama-filled emotional story, but like, not scary. Same with The Haunting of Hill House. Really, really good until everything becomes just a dramatic story and you're right. like, oh. And they totally diffuse everything that could be scary. Everything that was scary. explaining it. No longer scary. Again, fascinating story and we really loved the show. We watched it twice, but- Maybe not that scary. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a, there are scary moments in it that are absolutely terrifying. But then, like we said, as the show goes on, they explain all that stuff away and just totally diffuse what could be scary about it. Maybe you could say the same thing about, in like a micro sort of way, what goes on in Gerald's game. 
Gerald's Game is not a horror movie. There are, again, horror elements, and then those horror elements get kind of diffused by the end of the movie. I guess. But so his whole thing is he wants to put her in handcuffs and have and have that kind of sex, have kinky sex. Rough and she sex. is not into it. Not at all. And like the whole point of BDSM, and this always bothers me, is consent. Like if yeah. you don't if both parties are not into it, it doesn't work. Well, two it just things. becomes illegal at that point. <laughs> two things. There's no reason why the restraints need to hurt. It's very obvious that they're real and he appreciates that they're real and that's cool, but there's no reason why you can't pad them. Right. Also, safe words, people. Well, he will full on ignore her when she asks him to stop. That's why I'm saying, like, because part of his sort of fantasy, part of what gives him a rise, as it were, is like the struggle. You know, it's a safe place where he can feel out that desire without actually having to hurt anybody. It's turning into a rape fantasy I never knew you had. <laughs> exactly. No, it totally. But when she felt uncomfortable, the only way to distinguish between play and reality is by agreeing ahead of time. Like, this is the code word mm -hmm. that we're going to use. It's our safe word. Mm -hmm. Pineapple or whatever. <laughs> what was this? Some, in some movie, it was pineapple. I guess. <sighs> but they, they obviously never had that discussion. He was obviously not very concerned about her comfort. And that's a big issue when you want to engage in that kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and, and like, as soon as he starts calling himself daddy is when she really is like, okay, you need to uncuff me now. I'm not yeah. into this. I said I would try, but this is not working. And she never tells him. Up to this point, she had never told him. It's something she kept inside. But even now, where it's obviously a big deal and he's having a negative reaction and so is she, she still doesn't like... You know, hey, you know what? I got shit that that makes makes that very uncomfortable. Right. And that's because she does, she hasn't worked out through her own problems. Right. And then she reacts angrily. And she's like, is this what it takes these days? And like, you don't want to oh, shame your partner. that's the worst thing. You don't want to shame the person who's Listen. trying to be honest with you and tell you, hey, this is what I'm into. Right. It's one thing to say, well, that's great, but I'm not into it. It's another to be like, is that what it takes? Like, Jesus. You're a freak. And it's like, yes, he treated her very poorly. Yes. And he was an asshole to her. Yes. But like, why do you think this is so repressed in him? <laughs> Because he feels like he can't even be comfortable with it around his own fucking wife. So, like, yeah. When she says that, he responds angrily and is just like, sorry, I wanted to try to make things more exciting. Which is when she says the also rape. Also shitty. Yeah. Which is when she says the rape fantasy comment. And she's like, this isn't going to save us. I feel ridiculous. Again, oh. careful with word choice, people. Right? Jesus. Especially when you're in a compromised position. Oh, God. Yeah, but she trusts him. I don't know why. No, I mean, she trusts him not to, like... Like, obviously, she gets really, really disturbed in addition to her own shit that she's dealing with. And probably in compliment to it, he's crossing a line at that point that she did not expect him to ever cross. And so she's not immediately on guard about this because she never expected him to cross that line. And that's going to kind of harken back to while it's not literally the same thing it's the same sort of relationship dynamic going on with the trauma that she experienced as a child yes. someone she trusted to take care of her and protect her then prioritizing their own sexual gratification over that person's safety mm -hmm. 
she ends up biting him because he won't let her out of her restraints. Yeah, and he's like, oh, what the fuck? And that, I think that anger causes him, especially with Viagra in his system, uh-huh. causes him to have a heart attack. Yeah. Before he can let her out. And Like, I don't know. I was thinking that whole time. I'm like, yeah, he's worried he's having a heart attack. Like, he's ob- you can see him. I thought that was... I thought that was great acting on his part, like acting through a heart attack before he's just like, oh, I've got this weird uncomfortableness. And then like, oh, it's not going away. It's getting worse. Like that, I thought was a really good idea, a really good acting job. But as a person, I would think my, my very first reaction, if you and I were in that situation, my like immediate concern <laughs> would be, holy shit, I need to give her her key. <laughs> Like, right now. And he doesn't even look at that key. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's an asshole. Yeah. And then he's dead. <laughs> he just falls off the bed. He falls on her first. And then she pushes him off. She pushes him off. him off. And I don't think she intended him to just flop off the bed. Yes. And she's worried. She's like, she spends a while calling out to him, honey. Like, thinking he just passed Hours. out. And, and that he's going to wake up. But he never does, and she even notices and then tries to ignore the fact that there is blood pooling around his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you might be frustrated and you like being like, "Oh my god, what an idiot!" Well, the movie, the movie, the story, and her dead husband, which is her, will shame her about this. Yes. So I think she beats herself up enough. Yeah, that we don't need to harp on it. I about. don't think we do. No. The dog shows up and starts to eat the dead husband, which causes her to throw a book at the dog, and the book happens to be Midnight Mass. Yes, which is the newest Flanagan creation, the TV show that he did, which... We liked a lot. We liked a lot. I I really, really enjoyed. If you want more of that combination of, like, emotional, deep psyche sort of drama and horror... This has probably a more distinct balance of the two than anything he's done. And the crazy religious lady from Midnight Mass is the friend in, because this is another connection, is the friend in Hush, which Flanagan directed. Is she? Yeah, who comes over and says, oh, I loved your book, and is holding Midnight Mass, the book that she wrote. That's... Yes. Uh Oh my gosh, how funny. I didn't realize that. And so... There's all these sorts of connections. There, this, this is sort of in the Venn diagram of extended universes. It, it's a crossover between many connections to the King universes and many connections to the Flanagan universes. Mm-hmm. But the dog is unperturbed and continues to eat the husband. Take little bits. Which then leads her to kind of completely lose her mind and starts to imagine that she is speaking to her dead husband. Yes, and we learn a lot about their relationship here because the dead Gerald is very blunt and open and honest. Because it's her talking to herself. Exactly. I think that's very, very key is he's behaving in the way that she feels about him, not necessarily anything that he would actually do. And he's also now the critical voice for her. And she also has this sort of comforting motherly voice, which is the other side of herself. So- Mm -hmm. Carla Gugino is two characters in this. She she plays the the comforting voice and obviously the person who's handcuffed to the bed. Yes. So she's obviously carrying around some baggage of a turning point in her relationship with her husband where 
it's her having insight into her own understanding of how she feels about her husband. And when they had this sort of disconnect in their relationship, she walked up on him at a party as he was telling the punchline to a joke. And the joke is that he was saying to a bunch of men was, what is a woman anyway? A life support system for a... Yes. And it's interesting because I love that you get to hear both sides of the argument. Like, one side is, oh my god, my piece of shit husband. The other side of the argument is, he was with work colleagues. Like, it could have just been that he's trying to impress the people he works with. It doesn't make him not an asshole, but there is a sort of explanation that's not the core of who he is. Exactly. Yeah. You remember the joke I told at Christmas last year? He came up behind me. I was like four or five into the night already. I was loose, but not slurring yet. It was Tom Reynolds I was talking to. This low and conspiratorial and that very specific guys only fucking tone that says, you'll appreciate this, brother, but only you. You didn't hear the beginning of the joke, just the end. And what is a woman anyway? And I waited that cocky little pause I take before a punchline really makes me proud of myself. And Tom said, what? Like he already knew the answer. And I said... Um, a life support. Come on. And what is a woman, anyway? A life support system for a... Yeah, that was it. He never told me I heard it. You never raised an objection. You smiled through the night, hated me a little bit, but never once brought it up. Because you're not like that. You don't talk that way. Was I just putting on a show for a client? Stooping to his level to get something I needed, or was that who I really was? Underneath it all. Don't ask a question you don't want to know the answer to, I guess. You could argue, well, he's the one making the joke. True, but, uh, like, I think the movie does a really good job of telling you both sides. Like, what an asshole, but also you can maybe understand why he might have done it. Yeah, he saw a situation where he could gain social cachet by doing something that he wouldn't normally do and that he doesn't really believe in, but he thinks that they would get a kick out of. And he's not going to change these people's beliefs over a conversation at a dinner party. You know what I mean? Like, so he ends up contributing to some toxic, to some toxic masculinity. Like, yes, he did, but it's not like, Oh my God, I just learned something about my husband and now he's a terrible human being, but that does sort of boil and fester in the back of her head. Yes, and the bigger problem, I think, is that she's too weak-willed to say anything about it. Right, they could have had a conversation. He's just like, no, of course I don't believe that. I was saying a joke to a bunch of dickhead chauvinists because I need their business or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can make arguments that maybe that's not appropriate, and you'd probably be right. I would agree with you. Right, but... That doesn't mean that you are you don't know the person you married or something like that. He's not a serial killer. Right, yeah. (laughs) But that it doesn't stop that from festering in the back of her head. And that being like, in the background of all of their entire relationship going forward, she's thinking, a life support system, a life support system, a life support system. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's because she never talked about it. Yeah. Well, that's because, as we'll learn, 
as a child, she was she learned not to talk about issues, especially yes, with men. Very much so. Especially with men that have support relationships with her. But so he mentions Cujo. He says, Who could possibly hear you screaming? Except Cujo over there? Yeah. It's very exciting. So there are a lot of references to other Stephen King works, probably most explicitly Dolores Claiborne, but there are a lot of other smaller references. And this is one of them. We got one to the other movie we're watching this week. That's right. Which was Cujo. Yes. So yes, we have a. A woman trapped in isolation for an extended period of time with a harassing dog. (laughs) That's the theme this week. Yes. Written by Stephen King. (laughs) Yes. She ends up being able to grab the water. There's a, a glass of water above her head, right? Yes. Okay. That he took his Viagra with. Right. And she's able to get that because it's on a it's on a board that she is from where her hands are, she's able to tilt. Tilt the the wood so that the glass falls into her hand. And then the question is, oh, how am I going to actually drink it? And she remembers that when she put on the negligee, she had to take off the tag. So the tag is sitting next to her. So she grabs that. She twists it up, turns it into a straw, and she is able to drink water that way. So uh-huh. she at least is not in the immediate danger of dying for lack of water. Yeah. Now, the scariest element of this film is a character who is a grave robber crazy person. The Moonlight Man. But my problem is, and it's a big problem, the reason he's scary looking is because he has, is it elephantitis? The disorder is called acromegaly. And what the movie is going to do, what we will find out, we'll break to you right now. Is that he's not just in her head, because that's the impression that you get, is she sees this, like, spooky ghost, the angel of death coming to her. Yes. And he carries around this bag of bones, which is the name of a Stephen King book, mm-hmm. collection of short stories? I don't remember. It's a book. And- She shouts at him, and other little real. treasures. you're not real. Yes. You're not real. has a condition they find out later he, he was very real and he was a real person that broke into the house he ends up getting arrested later and she finds out that he has something called acromegaly which is what causes the i guess you could say distortions of the the bone structure of this man this is carol striken who we've seen on this show before i mean he's probably most famous for the Adams family. Oh, he's Lurch. Yeah. But yeah, it's the real condition that the actor has. It's really sad. Yeah. And he's been in a lot of things because of it. I mean, he was in Twin Peaks, uh, Men in Black, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, I think was the first thing he was ever in, where he was picked off the street. Like, we need you in our movie. He was in the Battle for Endor. 
which Kelsey loves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought I think that's so fucked up, and it's the same problem I have with Pet Cemetery. The scariest thing in your story, the scariest thing in your movie. Oh, is a real condition. Is a real condition. Right, but I think the fact of the matter is, is that they... They like elevate I say, it, yes, they, with, with colors and with... Uh, no. With, I mean, you're right, but what I mean is they diffuse the horror of it by saying, no, this is just a medical condition he has. He's not some fucking monster. He's a real human. Isn't he a murderer? He is. <laughs> I mean, he's not like... A mythical monster from dreams or whatever. But he's a monster in a metaphorical sense. Which and has nothing uh, to do with his bone condition. I, the, I the guess, point is, is what that, are yes, we afraid of when we might, see? He might look frightening, but she realizes, oh, he's just a man. And she's able to control her fear there. And I think that's kind of the point. Is people that have conditions that might seem frightening, they are just people. And they should be judged by their actions. Which is what he is ultimately judged for, is his terrible, terrible actions, not Still because saying. he's frightening. Still saying. Yeah. Oh, and that moment when she actually confronts him and he's like, you're not real. Oh, or you're real, a, I think is what he says. I can't. You're not real. He's saying yeah. what she said. Yes. And it's uh-huh. it's a way to confirm. This is the person, this is who, was the person who was yeah. in the room. Yep. Which does two things. It's fascinating. You're like, oh, man. It's but terrifying. also. It's terrifying in a different way. And it turns out that, yes, he he upgraded to necrophilia because he would rob graves, right? And then he would start having sex with corpses, but it was always men. So we find out that he had sex with her husband's dead corpse during one of the moments that he was passed out. Is that what that, we find that out? she was passed out. Yeah. Or is that just implied? I think it's implied, or they say that... I think they just say that he She was... was safe. And when it came to removing genitalia after having sex with the dead, he stuck strictly to the gentleman. This was clearly extremely lucky for me. He didn't kill people, and... Well, he did kill people. Did he actually kill people, or was he just a grave robber? So, I have it written down. Uh-huh. Um, he was a grave robber who took jewelry. Then he started taking body parts... Then he started to have sex with dead men. Uh-huh. Then he started to go after living people. Then he killed and ate his sister and her husband, who he called mommy and daddy. Yeah. 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 So he was just a psychopathic serial killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he didn't just randomly kill women. He killed these people that were in his life and men. Yeah. So, like, ultimately, she wasn't actually in danger, but he was a very dangerous human being. Yes. So it's it, like I say, it sort of diffuses that danger a little bit, but it adds a creepiness factor to it. Mm-hmm. Of that's real. She ends up giving him her ring by the end of the movie. Yeah, because she thinks he's not real. Uh huh. And her marriage means a lot different <laughs> than it used to mean to her. Yes. Yeah. You're and they never real. find the ring. You're only made of moonlight, is what she yeah. says, and what he says later. Yeah. And she she tries to tell herself, she's like, maybe that's just what death looks like. And her dead husband is like, yeah, then why'd the dog leave? (laughs) Which I liked. Uh That was a good line. Oh, and he points to the fact that, oh, look at the blood trail from the dog chewing parts off of me and stepping in the blood pool. 
and then going to the doorway and sitting there and eating in the doorway. What does that look like? <laughs> and there's a very clear footprint. And she's just like, I'm hallucinating. And that's a lot of it. I'm hallucinating you. I'm hallucinating myself. I'm obviously hallucinating the Moonlight Man, too. Mm-hmm. But nope. No. And this is when we get the lovely memories of, of her abuse uh, from her father. And I don't know that we need to get that into it. It occurs during a a eclipse, eclipse, which I'm yeah. told has to do something with Dolores Claiborne, which I've never seen or read. So there are a couple of things. So first of all, this is Henry Thomas. This is his contribution as part of the Flanagan crew. Uh, he plays her father, and the young Jesse is played by Chiara Aurelia. The guy from E.T. Yes, Henry Thomas, the guy from E.T. <laughs> Uh, and a bunch of other things we've watched personally and covered on this show, too. He's the guy from E.T. Yeah. But they're alone, and they're on a bench by a lake, and he does abuse her. She makes a big thing about how she rationalized that it wasn't that big of a deal because he never touched her. But that doesn't make it not abuse. Right. And it doesn't mean that it uh, had any less effect on her. And interestingly, they had to change when things happen to fit with reality, because in the book, this takes place, I think, in Maine. Mm -hmm. At the time when the young Jesse character would have been that age, there was a full eclipse. And you can see whenever an eclipse happens, they draw a line across the globe of like, if you're inside this line, then you can see a full eclipse. Everyone else is only going to see a partial or no eclipse at all. At the time, that would have been in Maine. But based on our timeline here, because this is a modern retelling, it takes place in Louisiana, which is also where the eclipse that happened then would have passed right over. So that's why they had to move the physical location of it where it happened, because that's where the eclipse would have been. But she talks about dreams that she has after that point. You know, first of all, how he made it seem like it was her idea to keep it a secret because she was she already had feelings about how her mother resented her. And if she reveals this to her mother and that ruins their marriage, her mother will hate her. Like he builds that up in her like a total fucking asshole. But anyway, she does have dreams and that ends up being how she copes a little bit internally. It all comes to her in her dreams and she goes back to that eclipse and she always sees what she describes as a woman by a well, and they don't bring that up ever again. So that is Dolores Claiborne. In the story of Dolores Claiborne, which is a Stephen King novel that came out around the same time, early 90s, Dolores decides that she needs to leave and ultimately decides she needs to kill her husband. Uh, don't worry. I mean, there are spoilers here, but it's not the main plot of Dolores Claiborne. There's a bigger story happening in that uh, because she finds out that her husband molested their daughter. As the eclipse begins, Dolores in that story has a vision of a young girl during an eclipse being abused by her father. And then it's in that moment when she sees this, this happening and doesn't really comment more on it that she causes her husband to fall down a well now he gets trapped at the bottom. You know, here's that theme of being trapped. Uh, he does try to 
climb out and pull her in. She hits him on the head with a rock and he falls back into the well. And that's like a big admission that Dolores makes during the course of that story is that she killed her husband because he was abusing their daughter. So there are all these common themes happening, and that's how these two stories are linked. They both reference each other, and they have that sort of Venn diagram overlap of child abuse. Also, minor reference to another story, Henry Thomas, I think it is, at one point mentions that they need to take their medicine. It's when he's saying, maybe we should tell your mom. Yeah, we should just take our medicine. I think it might be better for both of us if this were all out in the open now. Take our medicine. Which, of course, is a reference to The Shining. Now, by God, you are going to take your medicine. Jack says that to Danny. And it's something that Jack's dad always used to say to him. And here's this common recurring theme of generational trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I'm fine with watching a drama. I'm fine with dealing with tough, tough issues. Not when I'm here to see a horror movie. And nothing about this is frightening. And I'm like, okay, so this is more of a drama. Which was a bummer to learn on the, while watching it for the show, but that's fine. But even as just a drama, I feel like the monologues are a little drawn out. They're very long. There's a lot of them. Yeah, but I mean, when you're trapped there, there's not much you can do other than talk. Right, but there are ways of making dialogue interesting. Mm. You and I have both been enough plays to know that. Right, I mean, it makes me think of these sort of one location, maybe even one act plays where the all of the drama has to do just with people having conversations, like uh, waiting for Godot or something. You just you got to be careful with your monologues. You gotta you gotta be choosy with them, and you gotta pick them when they punch. Because otherwise it's just it's like, oh my god, another one. Where he's just staring there and he's just being really intense and talking at her. And she can't do anything. It's like, yeah. ah! She just has to sit and listen. I've <laughs> seen this a bunch of times at this point. To you know? her monologuing to herself. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I would have been more choosy than they were. At one point in all of his monologuing, he talks about how maybe this was fate. And he uses the phrase, all things serve the beam. Everything dies. All things serve the beam. And I have a, a buddy in particular who would be very upset. I've told him this, but he's very upset about it. To know that I've tried to read the Dark Tower series several times. And that beginning of the gunslinger, of the man in black, you know, and the gunslinger followed or whatever. That opening line is such a killer opening line to a novel. It's one of the best of all times. But for whatever reason, I can't explain why. I just never go back to it whenever I put it down. But it is a huge series that Stephen King has been telling over the course of Many, 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 many years and had installments in and it has overlaps with all of his other stories where the Dark Tower serves as the center of, of the Stephen King multiverse, basically. And there are these six beams that outstretch from the tower. And if the tower was ever to collapse, the beams would collapse and this multiverse would collapse. And that's what the man in black is trying to do. That's what randall flag is trying to do mm. so the concept of all things serve the beam is basically saying that things happen for a reason all of this is constructed it is fate 
And so that's what he is saying when he's talking about how this was always meant to be. All things serve the beam. It's he's just reiterating that point by using a reference to the Stephen King multiverse. Mm, makes he's sense. saying that her dying right now is inevitable and she should stop fighting against it. But so she keeps going over this memory and trying to figure out what she should learn from it. And I don't know if she really thinks she has or not, but her younger self keeps talking to her and is like, no, you're not remembering what I want you to remember. And it's very kind of silly, in my opinion. You yeah. need to remember specifically when your mom asked you what you guys did when she was gone because you were so scared that you cut yourself on it. And you need to remember you that crushed a glass because in your hand. you can crush the glass now and do the same thing. And I'm just, I'm a little, it's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, it's a little bit of a stretch and I'm a little bit confused as to what she thought her plan was going to be. Chris says that she thought that it would slide over her blood. Yeah. The blood that she created is, she mentions that it's a, a before it clots, it's a very effective lubricant. But the thing about blood, but the thing about blood is that until it clots, it's as slick as oil. She's hoping because she couldn't quite slide her hand through the cuffs that with that lubricant she can. Maybe she'll have to break a finger or two. But what she ends up doing is cutting herself really, really badly. And oh my God, this is brutal. It's a really intense scene. Brutal. <laughs> like if you want the moment where it's like, this is a horror movie, <laughs> you can show people the Moonlight Man and his bag of bones. You can show the dog nipping at her like the once or twice that it happens in the movie. But this moment is like, oh, <laughs> Because she pulls her hand through and it's been cut so much that her skin actually folds back on itself. Ah. And she's just pulling her bony fist ah. through and it's just flopping off. And she, what is she using? Pads or something to like wrap her hand when she finally gets out. She's barely able to like sort of manipulate the key into her other hand, which is still good <laughs> to unlock that other hand. And then yeah, she gets some pads from the bathroom or something like that and wraps her hand in them. And then she passes out. And she wakes up and the dog is chewing at her, at her hand, because it's all where all the blood is. And it rips the pads off and her hands all, her skin's all floppy again. It's ah, 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 ah. <laughs> You weren't there when my chin broke open. No, I was not. <sighs> Kelsey got into an accident. She was actually with a friend of mine doing some uh, 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 like park thing with a big group of people. And she banged her chin and it just tore open. She had to go to the emergency room. My skin was flapping all over the place. <sighs> very, very weird feeling. Oh, God. But yeah, this is brutal. This is where the gore really comes in. Like you have a dead body getting chewed up by a dog, but it's like it's out not to as the visceral. side, and you can't really see it. Well, when she gets out, she's able to see what the end result of all that chewing was. But it, but it's it's a bad thing happening to a dead body. Yeah, this is a living human having to experience that. Yes, ha 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 ha. I almost don't believe that she's ever able to write with that hand again. Uh, but she does mention it's with difficulty and it hurts her to do it. Yes. Mm -hmm. So she finally makes her way out and the neighbors 
have finally arrived, I think. It's the middle of the night. She's driving. Well, she gets into a car accident. She passes out and nails a tree. And people and inside they all come, come out. running out. Yeah. And so she's finally able to get help. And then we jump forward in time. And she has like a brace on her hand. Like it's a it's a sleeve that she wears on her hand that basically just holds everything in place. So she's still able to write with some difficulty. And she's writing a letter to her younger self. Like a therapy exercise. Mm-hmm. And she tells the story of what's real, about how she's come to terms with what her father did to her and what she did to herself trying to cope with that. And then she writes about seeing the Moonlight Man's face in the newspaper because they actually caught him unrelated to her, him being where she was. Mm-hmm. You can hear, I think it's on the news when they're driving in, there's a report about grave robberies. Gerald. Yeah. Gerald. And so she ends up showing up at his trial and just walking up to him and everyone's like, what the fuck is this lady doing? And then he turns to her and says, you're real. Like he's you're surprised or you're not real. Like he's reiterating what she said. I, f- I forget, but I think you're right. You're not real. You're only made of moonlight. You're not real. You're not real. Officer! You're only made of moonlight. And he breaks the zip ties, which is terrifying. Well, yeah, because he hasn't said word one even to his attorney this entire time ever since they captured him. This is the first utterances he's ever made. And then, yeah, he just breaks them and like, oh, I'm so excited. And they end up having to tackle him down. And in the commotion, she just leaves. And everyone who saw what happened is dealing with the fact that he just broke out of his restraints. And what the shock is of him talking and everyone who sees her leave didn't see that happen. So nobody thinks to stop her be like, lady, what the fuck was that? Who are you? What's your relation to any of this? What the fuck just happened? Like none of that. And she's just able to walk down the street. She walks down like the middle of the road away from the courthouse and towards the sun, which is symbolic to her because before this moment, the sun is related to the eclipse, which is related to her assault. Mm-hmm. And this is indicative of her coming to terms with the things that were done to her yes. and deciding that she wasn't going to hurt herself anymore mm-hmm. and take control of what she can take control of mm-hmm. and not be scared of things if she has any say in the matter, which is why she approached the Moonlight Man. <laughs> yes. And that's the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. She's stuck. She hallucinates a bit. A crazy grave robber murderer visits her and she thinks he's fake. <laughs> she gets out by destroying her hand. <laughs> and by the end, she comes out a better person, having gone through her own little personal therapy session, like forced, you know, high endurance therapy session. So with all that said, Kelsey, what do you think Gerald's game has on Rotten Tomatoes? Pretty sure when this came out, everybody loved it. So I'm going to guess it's pretty high. Uh, yeah, keeping in mind that this is its rating as a movie, not as a horror movie. Yeah. 76? 91. Okay, I was definitely thinking it was probably more in the 80s, but okay. Well, 
As a reminder to everyone here, Rotten Tomatoes is the percentage of professional reviewers who liked it versus disliked it. Yes. That's all it's saying. 91% of reviewers walked away saying that they would like it. Yes. The actual Metacritic average, the average of scores, and there's problems with Metacritic as well, but the Metacritic average was actually really close to what you guessed. It was 77. Okay. Not 76, which was your guess. That's hella close. But the Rotten Tomatoes consensus is Carlo Gugino carries Gerald's game's small-scale suspense with a career-defining performance. Probably, this is a Carlo Gugino vehicle. This is her movie. Mm -hmm. She is front and center the whole fucking thing. And even when we have Bruce Greenwood coming back as a dickhead ghost, (sighs) that still just represents Carla's character. Yes. And then she has another version of herself to offset him. Yes. So it's like, this is the Carla Gugino show. (laughs) And yeah, I thought she did a phenomenal job. I thought she did great. I thought she did a very good job. But do you think that a 91% is overrated or underrated? Way overrated. I would agree. What would you give it? I'm going to give it a 74. Okay. I think it's good. It's not a horror movie. It's not scary. It's got too many long monologues. There are a few too many moments where I'm just like, really? Bothers me that the scariest part is somebody who has a disease. I would give it higher than that. I think I liked it more than you liked it. I won't give it a 91, but I think I could give it an 81. Okay. I see this as actually a really good movie on its own. It is a drama with thriller and horror elements. Like, it's not something that you just sit down and watch with your grandma because you want to watch a drama. (laughs) It's not that kind of drama. No. There's definitely horror elements to it, but it is more about, and this is a trait of Flanagan, it's more about what happens to people psychologically than it is about the scares themselves, mm-hmm. which is something I really, really appreciate in Flanagan's work. And I don't want to say that because this is more like that, it's a worse movie. It's not. I really liked it. I would go away suggesting anyone that has a stomach for this sort of thing, see it as a very powerful movie. But like you say, it's not a scary movie. No. But it's good. I'll give it an 81. Okay. And that ends our Stephen King writes about women being trapped and harassed by dogs week on Pod Cemetery. <laughs> what are we watching next week, Kelsey? So next week we're going to do a sequel week. And we're going to touch on a franchise that we have not touched in a long time. The Amityville series. Now, according to Wikipedia, that's as far as our research has gone. According to Wikipedia, there are a lot of sequels in this franchise, but the majority of them have been direct-to-video. And now, I understand that this happens to certain franchises. Hellraiser is one of them. A bunch of them were direct-to-video. Mm-hmm. But because we're not exactly huge fans of Amityville. And they get worse, we're told. From what we're told, they get worse and worse and worse. So what we're thinking is, well, let's go with the ones that had theatrical releases. So that would be the sequel, Amityville 2, The Possession, from 1982. We're going to watch that. And then the next theatrical movie, theatrically released Amityville sequel. 
that, that hits our 20-year marker, uh-huh. that would be the Amityville Playhouse from 2015. Which had a limited theatrical release. So that's the, the ones that we're going to do. Yes. Possession and Playhouse. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, there is also one made-for-TV Amityville movie, and apparently only one. Most of these are, like Kelsey said, direct-to-video. We will include Amityville 4, The Evil Escapes, as a numbered sequel in our definition. So, next week is Amityville 2, The Possession from 1982, and The Amityville Playhouse from 2015, a.k.a. The Amityville Theater. Yes. Depending on your region, I don't know. (laughs) But... Let's see what happens to this Amityville universe, right? We've never seen any other Amityville movies. Nope. So let's experience this together, shall we? Until then, you can always find us on our website, podcemetery.com, and on Twitter, at podcemetery, which is the easiest way you can get a hold of us directly. You can subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice, which would be very helpful, especially if you give us a rating and a review. A five-star written review is the biggest help you can give us there. Even bigger than that is sharing us with your friends, and even bigger than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Fuck you, dog. I don't To the sacred place To see the dream I can't escape Smoldering some fangs to the picking We will include Amityville 4, The Evil Escapes, as a numbered sequel in our definition. I love I love that you're making that clear now. Well, because later on people say, you said you were only going to do the theatrical ones. <laughs> Is this a connection to another Steven Spielberg story? Steven Spielberg. Hit me, baby, one more time. I was going to say Spielberg again.